The Starlight Lounge presents An Evening with the Progressive Box. The moon, yeah. That's Hugo, tickling the ivories. He just saved by bundling home and auto with Progressive. Gonna finally buy a ring for that gal of yours, Hugo? Send her my condolences. Hi-oh! This next one's for you, too. There's a burglar in my heart. Thank you. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Discounts not available in all states or situations. Absolute Podcast. I'm your host, as always, John Casillo. And with me today is actually Ari Gilberg. It's great to be here, John. First time. First time, long time. (laughs) Dan is unfortunately ill today, but luckily we have many capable replacements, one of whom is Ari. Um, Ari, I guess to start, uh, a little Syracuse football scheduling. Uh, There is no news. It it hurts me to say that, but uh, given the article I put up today kind of talking about how the schedule still isn't done. Um, what would you personally like to see? Um, and, and without looking into, you know, who the the possible answers are, what, what I guess is your is your ideal, um, you know, Syracuse non conference schedule look like? I just like to see them at least pick up some teams where definitely competitive, not the easy cupcake teams. I feel like if Syracuse is going to try to compete, at least in the ACC, they need to pick up very difficult opponents, or at least some that would definitely provide some entertainment. Personally, I would love to see them pick Bowling Green and try to schedule a game against them. Obviously, there's just so much you can do with that matchup, especially with Dino Babers leaving Bowling Green and taking on the Syracuse job. I feel like the offense would be similar, and it'd be very interesting to see how Syracuse's new revamped high-speed offense compares against Bowling Green's. Yeah, I, yeah, I think that that's, a, that's an interesting uh, perspective. I know Bowling Green is one of the teams um, that that <coughs> excuse me seems to have an opening um, and, and seems to at least be a, a likely candidate just because of the fact that um, you know Dino Babers and much of his staff are kind of close to to the Falcons. Still, it would seem to be a, a, a nice um, comparison, as you said. It, it overall it does make sense. Um, I, I wouldn't be opposed necessarily. Um, and, and if we're going to go on the road, um, I'd much rather go to Ohio, um, you know, for, for that game versus, you know, heading down to Florida, um, for the, you know, second or third time in the year, um, or, or going down to Louisiana for a second time if we were to face, um, you know, either, either Monroe or Lafayette or potentially Tulane. It just seems like, Bowling Green is is the natural fit, um, you know, regardless of whether we play the schedule of this game at home or on the road. Um, Ari, out of the teams that I kind of laid out here, I don't know if you had the article opener, if you read it earlier, um, who would you prefer? you think it's Bowling Green, or do you think from a recruiting perspective, um, is, is it a Florida International or maybe a Coastal Carolina? I feel like Bowling Green and Florida National probably be the my top two choices, Bowling Green, as I mentioned, just entertainment value, I feel like it'd be exciting. And Florida Nash, International, it's a winnable game in Florida, and they've been recruiting better in the state of Florida, and there's still plenty of plenty more talent. Obviously, playing a game in Florida can only help your recruiting process, and especially that's a game that is definitely winnable, unlike playing at, against Florida State, where most likely they're going to lose that game 10 times out of 10. Yeah, I mean, you look at 2017 in particular, um, could set up really well for, for Florida recruiting. Um, obviously, we have a game at Florida State that year. We have um, a game, you know, at Miami. You would think we'd try to avoid a game at FIU, um, if only because we already are heading down to LSU. Um, adding a third game, even if it's a, a winnable one like FIU, I feel like four trips outside of uh you know the the northeast to midwest area um seems like a lot but at the same time that the potential benefits of saying hey you know we're down in in the southern part of the country three to four times a year um, could potentially outweigh uh two you figure and this is something we can kind of dive into a little bit with recruiting um nick nick monroe's done a great great job down in florida but um at the same time i think what could even help more is after a year of um you know, seeing what, what the Syracuse offense looks like under Dino Babers, if, if results are really positive, um, you know, right now recruits are, are committing based solely on spec 
um, and on what they consider it to be um, from what they saw at Bowling Green, I would think seeing you know guys like Dungey and guys like Ishmael and guys like Jordan Fredericks and others um, playing in this offense, you would think that SU's ability to recruit, um, especially on that side of the ball, um, with actual results on, on the field is only going to increase over time. Mm-hmm. So, Ari, I guess, um, who are the, maybe, and you don't have to have specific teams, who are the least likely, uh, or at least least preferred teams um, for you um, as far as a non-conference opponent? If we're looking at 2017 in particular, knowing that, um, you know, LSU is already locked up uh, and, and that Central Michigan is already locked up as well. Um, I can't really think of any teams off the top of my head. Just, but I'm trying to think. Um, I know I, mean, I, I said you want to face. Yeah, like what type of team? Would, would, like what type of team would, would you prefer to to avoid? Um, and, and that could be a, a conference, a a classification, whether it's Group of Five or Power Five, uh, whether it's a style of play. Is there any? Is there anything in particular that you're just looking to avoid completely, based on what we already have on that schedule? Style of play. Definitely a team that has a great running game. Watching the spring game live, um, while the offense did look great, the defense did not look good, especially the middle of the D-line. Time and time again, Syracuse offense would just run it right up the gut and just pick up yardages 10, 7, 8, 20, just yard runs every time. I think they've only, I only saw a couple stops, and that was mainly just Chris Lane just doing a great job. Other than him, the entire D-line just looked extremely weak. So you, if you play a very strong running game type of team, a team maybe, obviously they wouldn't play Alabama, but a team that just historically can run the ball down your throat, I just don't see how Syracuse could ever win that matchup. That's a good point. And you know what, uh, since, since Dan and I were, uh, were not at the, um, at the spring game, all right, you want to give us kind of, I mean, you can divert a little bit from the article you wrote right afterwards if you want. Uh, what are maybe some other things outside of what you wrote about um, that that were, were positive and then maybe head toward a little bit of, of some of the negatives? Positive as a whole, just the offense looked phenomenal. They clicked multiple times, and compared to last, I know last year I think they scored a single offensive touchdown. This year they scored 13, which is just a drastic improvement. They threw the ball better. They ran the ball better. They were... They had long drives. That just they, were, they had very long drives, and they also had drives where it was only a couple plays, and they were able to score quickly. And the crazy thing is, after the game, both Eric Dungey and Dino both said that this offense is not even close to where it is in terms of speed-wise. I think Dungey mentioned they were going about 25%. So that, in a whole, is definitely just a great thing. On the flip side, the defense didn't look that good. As I said, the D-line looked extremely weak, and the pass defense... And the cornerbacks and defensive backs just didn't look like they were. I don't. I'm not sure if it was just a defensive scheme thing trying to get adjusted, but there were multiple times where they were just completely out of adjustment. And they were just not at the right place. Every single quarterback threw a touchdown, which is something that I think is just extremely surprising. If you've seen Austin Wilson throw, if you've seen Zach Mahoney throw, <laughs> both of them looked phenomenal. Well, yeah. And, I mean, that's my question. Do you think that this is a product of? Um, you know, Baber's system taking hold and, and, and quality work being done on the offensive end in practice? Or do you think that this is something um, that at last year's struggling defense, losing a couple pieces is going to be even worse this year? I think it's a mix. Because there, there was a couple touchdowns that even Dungy threw where it was, un, it was an underthrown ball, but there was just no one in the realm of the receiver. If, you do, if, if he threw those passes against a team like Clemson, a team like Florida State, LSU... Any team, honestly, that has a remotely capable defense, those passes will most likely get intercepted. All right, and do you think that that is a product of the talent on issues roster and maybe lack thereof, or do you think that it's a, it's a product of um, getting into, I guess, getting into a bit of a rhythm with the Tampa too, since uh, this is a real big change for a lot of these players who are recruited to, to hit hard and make big plays over, over provide quality coverage. I think it's probably a mixture of both. Although I think even once they do get adjusted to the scheme, I just don't think the talent is really there. Theoretically, Syracuse defense has done relatively better in the past, especially the past defense, but they lost a lot of key players. 
And I just don't think that outside of Corey Winfield, I don't think there's any really capable defensive back that is going to be able to really cover a lockdown receiver. All right. All right, you are you are very, taking a very not I mean I wouldn't say negative. You're taking a, a very harshly realistic view toward this. Hey, team. on the bright side, the offense looks good. It's going to at least be exciting. So like unlike last year when we lose games, it'd be pretty boring. Even if we lose, it'd probably be in a shootout. Yeah, I was joking with people about that today in the comments saying, you know, like cuz of course, you know, I, I I always harp on scheduling um, and, and I always get pretty heated about it. Um, and, and today someone brought up, of course, you know, that's one of my other biggest pet peeves is, is play calling. And, and I think people were saying, you know, they fell for me the last few years doing it. I, I honestly, I think this year, win or lose, I think it's going to be a pretty rewarding experience. This is, this is going to be an offense that it's going to be fun to watch the first time. I'd only imagine, uh, fun the second time as well. This is a team that's going to be able, I mean, it's going to make it longer, they make these longer rewatches and longer articles to write, but um, at the same time, like if we're gonna if we're gonna lose games by a, by a forty two to to thirty score or things like that, I mean, and and you see improvement week by week, and you see uh, development week by week, and you see you know competent playmaking week by week. To me, I I think that that's a that's a great gig for for me or anyone who's doing it, especially for the fans. I know. Last year's intense, people would just leave at halftime, even if it was a relatively close game. But if it's just not entertaining, you're not going to have people that want to go watch the games. A high-speed offense like this, we live in an era where everyone loves offense. The rules have, theoretically, throughout the years, been adjusted to favor the offense. So it's a team that is going to play extremely fast, score a lot of points. The defense may give up a lot of points. The defense may give up even more points. But at least it's going to be exciting to watch. Too true. Um... I guess you mentioned a little bit on you know what what Eric Dungey and Dino Babers were saying after the the spring game, um, based on the interview he had with uh, David Hale today. Speaking of Dungey, um, do you think that that this is a coach and quarterback who are already pretty in sync, or do you think this is Eric Dungey kind of saying a lot of the right things to make sure uh, that that he locks up a starting job that we assume is his, but Babers has not said explicitly is. I think they appear to be in sync. Even interviewing them after the spring game, they're. Their answers to the type of when I, when questions were asked regarding the speed of the offense were almost identical. They both said how the offense is running way slower than anticipated, and they both say how they they do really want to speed it up. I think it seems like they're going to be sneaking. I would be shocked if Dungy is named the starting quarterback. He's received I think almost three fourths of the drives during the spring game, and even his answers with uh, ESPN's David Hale are very similar to the answers. Uh, Babers has given in the past regarding the offense. Yeah, I mean, I, do you think that that's um, think that all this is pretty indicative of, of, of Dungy doing well? And, and I guess what, and this is really, really early, obviously not even taking into account each individual game. What type of numbers do you see Eric Dungy uh, being able to put up this year, both uh, through the air and on the ground? I think the numbers will definitely be higher than last year's, especially if he can stay healthy. Although I think it's it's very early to tell to see how much the run game is going to impact this. Because I know, while they were offense in the past, the quarterback has also thrown a lot. The quarterback has ran and the running game has been very, very good. Especially when you have a team like Syracuse and they have multiple running backs who can carry the ball. If the run game gets going early, that could also impact and limit uh, Dungy's numbers through the air. So I think it's a little bit early to tell. I do think overall they'll be much higher than last year's under Scott Schaefer. I would hope so. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and I guess the last question on, on the spring game and kind of you know what happened during spring football, um, one, one of the highlights people were kind of uh, stressing in particular was um, a nice burst up the middle by, by Mo Neal. Um, what did you see from him in particular that indicates uh, that, that he could potentially not just play this year, but, but really, really impact this offense? Monio played phenomenal. I think it shocked everyone just because this is a guy who just came in. There's been no footage of him. We haven't seen him play all in outside of a few like minutes in practice, and he looked extremely quick. His cuts were just very decisive. He looked like he was just running with a passion. He was making people miss. There was one run where... He ran up the guy, I think it was around 20 to 30 yards, and made, I counted, five defenders miss. And then he was finally stopped at the two-yard line. The next play, he just ran up the gut untouched. 
this is a freshman. He's definitely going to carry the ball a lot. He started as the backup right behind uh, Strickland. So he's already surpassed last year's starter, Jordan Fredericks, and George Morris III. And I wouldn't be surprised by the end of the year if he's carrying the ball more than Strickland and more than any other running back. He's extremely talented and extremely quick and very fast. All right. You heard it from the men. I, uh, I, I think a lot of us were, were really excited about Mo. I, I think that, that like, like you said, no one's really prepared for um, you know, what, what I think we saw early and, and, and what we're going to see hopefully during this season. I think, again, a lot of people are, are very, very excited um, to see what he does. Um, moving on to kind of some, some past football players, um, obviously there's a lot of guys that graduated um, there's a lot of guys that, that hope they could hear the name called in the draft. Um, but two in particular have a shot because they were invited to the Combine. There's at least something implied there that NFL teams are looking at them. Um, if you had to bet which of Ron Thompson or, or Riley Dixon uh, are, are drafted um, toward the end of this month, uh, who, 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 I guess, would, would you put your money on? I would definitely bet on Ron Thompson. It's For a player like Riley Dixon, where he's not the clear-cut favorite in terms of best punter in the country although i'm sure you're gonna find many syracuse fans argue otherwise it's gonna be difficult for him to get drafted especially because he's ranked as a seventh rounder or undrafted free agent and typically those guys will simply go undrafted and teams will assign them ron thompson although it's not a sure thing he does get drafted he has a much higher chance especially because he did improve a lot of his numbers on this pro day compared to his nfl combine which were pretty poor I feel like a guy like Ron Thompson, where he also has a lot of versatility. He can he's played DN, he can play tight end. He even he even caught passes at his pro day. And some teams have even considered moving him to linebacker. That can only help him. I'm not sure if he does get drafted, but he's a much higher chance than Riley Dixon. That's fair. I mean, yeah, punters, no matter how good you are, it, it is really a crapshoot. Um, there has been very few punters drafted. Um, and I think Dixon's versatility is great. And, and you know what? I think Thompson's versatility is pretty great, too. Um, do you see teams maybe trying to move him back to the offensive side of the ball? Or do you think that's really more of a, of a ploy to say, hey, like, you know, I, I, I can be a, a utility guy. I can be a bit of a catch-all for, for, you know, whatever spot you need me to plug into. I don't think he really—I I doubt he actually will get moved to tight end. I think it's more so just him saying, hey, I'm like a Swiss Army knife. I can just do it all. He's clearly a better defensive end than he ha- than he was a tight end. Because if that if he was a better tight end, we he wouldn't have been moved in the first place. This is true, um, and I guess what do you see? What do you see as their career prospects? I mean, drafted or undrafted, obviously you, you still have a chance um, in the NFL. Um, where do you project the, the, the two of them? Um, you know, maybe ten years down the road. Honestly, probably not in the NFL. I mean, the people, most fans don't realize the average career for an NFL player is only three seasons. And if you're in your seventh-round draft pick, that just makes it that much harder to even stay. I mean, who knows? Maybe they, they kill in a preseason. Maybe Riley Dixon outshines all, all the other punters in the preseason and gets a solid gig and he's able to keep that for at least a couple of years. Maybe Ron Thompson is a seventh-round gem. But the odds are definitely going to be stacked against them, unfortunately. Fair, fair. Uh, I think, to be honest with the two of them, and this isn't to disparage either, I think that you know Thompson's had a chance, but, but not an amazing one without the type of speed and size that you need at the NFL level. Um, I think that uh, Dixon, on the other hand, can punt the football, does do it well. Um, I, I think the, the extra stuff is great, but it's not really going to make or break your, your chances to, to be on a roster. Um, but I do think he could punt the ball well enough, and I think enough punters every year get get cut that that, that he stands a better chance. It, I mean, I'm not going to say it's a ma- an amazing one, but he definitely stands um, a better chance than most punters coming out of college. The thing with Dixon, he's definitely got to work on his leg on his leg strength. He while he is great at his accuracy and like placing punts just out of bounds or right along the sideline, his leg is a, is a lot weaker than the other punters. If he can work on that. He definitely has a great chance. Well, not a great chance. He's a much better chance than he would have right now. And the problem with Ron Thompson is, I think his four-year dash time was 
4.9 something seconds, like just under 5 seconds, which is very slow, especially for his size, where he's only around like 250 pounds, which is pretty small for a defensive end. Right, and yeah, I mean, that was kind of what I was getting at, too. Like, the, the speed with him is going to be a problem, especially when you look at the size. Um, and that doesn't mean he can't. doesn't mean he can't carve out a productive career, um, you know, as as potentially a special teamer or whatever right. it is. But, um, yeah, I think defensive end is, is, is going to be a tougher sell um, for him as time goes on. But, you know, th- these things happen. But looking at, I guess, then shifting gears a little bit to the, to the NBA draft, um, I guess, w- what does your intuition say uh, in terms of Lydon and, and, and Richardson? Obviously, I think it's it would seem clear to us that at least one of them, if not both, Declare just for the sake of getting um, feedback, uh, but but what do you think the odds are of, of Malachi Richardson leaving? I'm not sure, honestly. Every year I always say, oh, these guys probably aren't going to leave, and then every year they do. With the new rules, though, I think it's it would make sense for both of them to declare, not hire an agent, just see where they would lie. The problem, that's going to be the key, though, is what do the... What are all the scouts saying? Do they think Malachi actually has a shot to really sneak in the back end of the first round? Do they think he's going to be drafted at least in the high high second round? I mean, Leiden has already given indication that he wants to come back to Syracuse. Obviously, that could change. The big thing is, is as most Syracuseans know, Malachi gave no comment and then seemed extremely irritated on Twitter after fans kept pestering him about it. I would, If I had to bet money, I would bet both of them stay really because Malachi did have a very inconsistent season while he's great in a tournament, especially that comeback against Virginia. There were plenty of games where he just simply disappeared and was erratic with his drives and turned the ball over multiple times. I think no, if he... So, no, go for it. I was saying, I think if they both stay, they have chances to get drafted at least to the back end of the first round next season. That's a good point. Uh, I, I, obviously, like while Richardson put up the gaudier numbers potentially, at least for, for a stretch during the tournament here. Um, I think a lot of a lot of draft hype around him and from people he's that are certainly going to get in his ear um, uh, in terms of, you know, going are, are just the case that, you know, it, it really does boil down to a couple weeks in the tournament and, and it ignores some other factors. At the same time, um, you look at, there's plenty of players who have who have had worse tournaments than him who got drafted, plenty of players who have had less consistent freshman years who've gotten drafted. And a lot of it's just, you know, it's the size and what he can round into. It's the shooting and how a lot of people feel like that's something that can be can be worked on and fixed. Um, I'm not convinced he goes, but I'm also not convinced he stays. Um, it's it's I know that's a stupid answer in, in many ways, but it's it's just one of those things where you can't you can't predict um, an event that that's almost entirely based on um, speculation um, and, and, and projection. And there's, I feel like year over year, you, you see more and more kind of, you know, it just becomes a bit of a dice roll um, a, as an event. And, and that's not a, I mean, that's just how it is. That's how most drafts are. But I think in particular, the NBA, I mean, you saw when, when you know, Chris McCullough was drafted uh, last year, end of the first round, the guy played mm-hmm. in 10 games. I mean, he wasn't exactly the picture of consistency at all. Um, and you know he obviously got paid and then some. So I know I, as much as I'd like to say I know the the college game and the pro game. Uh, at the same time, you know you you never know what these scouts are going to harp on. You never know what um, what people are going to see uh, in, in in some film, even if limited. Um, and I I think that there could be enough to convince people on Malachi. Um, I think Leiden is, is, is in a similar boat where I actually think if, if Leiden just decides to stick around and doesn't even bother testing the waters, I think he stands a very good chance to stay. Um, actually, I mean, if he decides not to test the waters, he will stay. That's clear. Um, and and I'd, I'd, feel very, I'd feel very good about him, you know, that next year if he didn't declare, but I, I don't think that it's anyone's place to tell him what to do necessarily i think um i think Leiden stands a better chance to get drafted in the late first round if he were to to try out for some teams uh versus malachi that i think some would advise him to maybe give it a year exactly the main question is are do they 
are they fine with being second-round picks? Because if they are, then they're going to declare. If they want to improve and try to get drafted in the first round, then they'll mostly come back. But the thing is, a lot of players in recent years, they just want the money as soon as possible. That's why there are questions. Even Roberson was considering just leaving early to just go play in Europe. Yeah, and I mean, and, and again, it's not to knock the the allure of, of, of what money can do and everything else, I oh, think. I, I think, if anything, like the amount of money that basketball provides and the amount of consistent paychecks that it can provide across the, the world um, has, has turned it into a, a very, very lucrative um, you know, way to make a living. I think, if anything, it's, it's more lucrative than any other sport. You look at baseball, if you want to make it in baseball, you're probably not going overseas as an 18, 19-year-old. You're you're going to toil away in the minors um, if you if you want or need to get paid. In football, uh, you don't really have a choice but to play three years at college and, and not get paid. Um, in hockey, I mean, you have options for sure, um, and and you have options around the world. But I wouldn't say you have as many options as you do for, for basketball, and that's the one thing that you know, is going to continually factor in um, for, for any college basketball player or any potential college basketball player sitting around in high school is – you only have to wait one year. Um, you know, what do you want to do? And, and for a college player, you know, you, you don't have to really wait at all to go get paid. Once you, if you decide that you'd rather make money that, than not, um, there there's a million outlets waiting for you. Uh, and, and I think that's going to be something as the game continues to globalize and more money gets poured into it um, in, in foreign countries, you know, especially in China and some of the other Asian markets. Um, it's going to be intriguing to see how many players decide, well, like, no, I might not be on television in America much, but, um, it, you know, if I can make, you know, 80, 90 K, um, for a couple of years, um, and then maybe get some NBA interest, or if I can not make NBA, not get NBA interest, but maybe make, you know, 80, 90 K to start and, and carve out a 10 year career in, in, in China or, or, or anywhere else. I, I, I think that allure is going to start factoring in more than people realize. Right, there are plenty of former Syracuse players who are just playing in Europe right now and seem to be doing well, such as James Sutherland and Brandon Trish. And at least every year, I know Sutherland is trying to, after his season's over in Europe, he comes back and tries to compete in the summer league, at least get an NBA shot. And while it hasn't happened yet, they seem they're making plenty of money in Europe right now playing basketball, which is the game they love to play. So still a great job and a great living. Yeah, absolutely. And yeah, like I said, can't hate it. Um... That kind of brings us to halftime. Um, usually we talk about beer here. Ari, are, 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 you, are you game to talk about some beer, or are you completely out of this conversation? Oh, seeing how I'm under 21, probably wouldn't be the greatest conversation right now. Still only 20 years old. Well, in that case, I'm going to talk about <laughs> beer. I'll listen. <laughs> That's fair. Uh, <laughs> Dan, feel free to comment in your picks uh, <laughs> when you're done with this. Uh, some of the things I was drinking last week... Um, had a five golden rings from the brewery. It was their uh, their anniversary golden ale um, a couple of years back. Uh, quite a good one. I had a bunch of Oberon ale because I was trying to clean out the rest of my fridge. Um, bought a bunch when I was watching the Sweet 16 here with my in-laws and uh, wife's cousin. Uh, also had King Harbor uh, Coconut IPA. It's their regular IPA with coconut added. Pretty good stuff. Um, it was over at... Uh, this newish uh, German uh, sausage and beer bar. Uh, so I had a uh, Kronbacher Pils. Uh, that was a very good one. And that was really it. Kept it, uh, it kind of light last weekend. Which one and is your Ari, favorite? And, of, of those? Um, you know what? I, I really enjoyed the, the IPA with coconut the most, but I had had it before. Um, surprisingly, just like for the sake of having like a, a light drink and relaxing, I think the Kronbacher Pils was just a... To, you know, traditional German Pilsner, but a really good one at that. Um, definitely, definitely got a lot out of that one, and I, I might have to go to it again the next time I'm over there. Seems like it's a good choice. Yeah, I, th- I think so. Um, all right. I guess continuing our NBA draft uh, conversation a little bit, um, the one player that we know is going to be um, entered in is, is Michael Benajay. Now, um, people vary. Some people seem to think he's, he could be... Uh, in early seconds, some people see him as a late. Some people see him undrafted. Um, Ari, where do you see him going? And, and and I guess, what do you think works in his favor and maybe against him? 
first off, I definitely think he's going to be drafted. I would be very shocked if he's not. He's had a great senior year. He had one of the best seasons in the ACC. In fact, he was the only player in the ACC to score double-digit figures in every single game. The problem with him, well, the main issue with him is he's 24 years old, which in terms of NBA draft is absolutely ancient. Brandon Ingram is, I think, I believe 19, at the, or Brandon Ingram and Simmons, they're both 19 and 20, and Ben Jay's already 24. While he's had to stay every year to improve his game, which is the reason why he's in talk to be drafted, it also hurts him because of how old he is. If I had to guess, I'd say he'd probably be drafted in the middle of the second round. I think he definitely offers experience. He offers versatility. He can play the one, two, and the three. He has very he has good ball handling skills, not great. He needs to work on his left hand. And his shot at times is inconsistent. He's had games where he shoots above 40, above 50% from the field, and he has games where he really struggles, as we saw against North Carolina. But I, I would definitely I would be shocked if he is not drafted. He's definitely worthy of a second-round pick. Fair enough. Uh, what do you think? I mean, obviously, you know, what, what type of team do you think that he would be a help to, or maybe what type of team do you think it would be beneficial for him um, to, to be drafted on too, in terms of just player development and maybe some some actually NBA level playing time o- over over the D League. Honestly, I feel like it would be better for a team for him to go to a team that is just has extremely poor talent, almost like Jeremy Grant with the Seventy Sixers. Because while that team may not succeed, they may not win. At least it opens playing time for you to develop. Like we've seen Jeremy Grant, he was drafted by the 76ers in the second round. And he, by doing so, by going to a team with that week of talent, it allowed him to actually get playing time and develop his game. Well, on the flip side, we saw Tyler Ennis get drafted at the end of, sec- end of the first round and went to the Phoenix Suns, where I think they had already had four guards at the time, barely got any playing time. And now he's the third string point guard for the Sorry, he's the third-string point guard for the Milwaukee Bucks, and again, still gets no playing time. In order to develop in the NBA, you at least have to play, whether that be in the D-League or in the NBA. You need to play in order to develop. Yeah, no, I, I completely agree there. I think it was something that Dan and I talked about in the podcast when the draft happened. I think it was something that um, you know, we talked about on the site, too, uh, when it happened, is that you couldn't find a worse situation for him because of, of, of the player personnel in oh, Phoenix. Terrible. Yeah, just it, it was an awful fit. Uh, Phoenix was playing with a pace that he really wasn't used to, um, based on his time at Syracuse. I mean, that offense was a slog. Um, they were they were very good for much of the season, but um, the pace and everything just really did him no favors. Um, and, and I think you know, you go to Milwaukee. It's the same. It maybe the offense looked like it was a little bit better suited for what he did in college, but at the same time. Um, there was just a little bit of, I mean, it's the same thing. It, it's the personnel. It's, I mean, it, even now he's sitting behind another, um, you know, Syracuse, um, not alum because he didn't graduate, but <laughs> former orange player, um, in Michael Carter Williams. I mean, it doesn't really seem like Ennis is going to be able to play his way out of that one. Um, and, and, and I guess, you know, that's kind of, that goes for any, is any sport, and again, it's it goes back to the draft and, and its imperfections, and it's that at the end of the day, it's are you in a system that that plays to your strengths? Are you are you playing under a coach that is willing to to invest in youth? I mean, you look at the LA Lakers now. You know, Byron Scott spent half the season, um, you know, spurning the team's youth um, and and kind of burying it on the bench, and, and that's had some some dire consequences. I think you look at guys like. Well, in particular, uh, D'Angelo Russell has been able to to play through it and and play past it. But um, at the same time, maybe a guy like Julius Randle, um, who who it basically is his rookie season, um, hasn't done so as well. I think the two of them are, are well positioned to grow. But because they they play under a coach who really hasn't done well with with, with young guys, and they had a a roster that wasn't necessarily built to contend or tank. Um, and, and then plus the Kobe retirement tour, uh, you know, this was a team that, that wasn't well situated for rookies while, like you said, a team like Philadelphia, um, obviously, you know, well situated to put rookies in and, and, and play young guys like Jeremy Grant, who now is developing into um, a pretty good, um, you know, 
young stretch forward and, and a guy who, who's, who's going to get paid um, this offseason, I, I would assume. I mean, he's not going to make you know superstar money, but with an increased salary cap um, and, and a nice you know resume of production under his belt, um, Jeremy Grant suddenly seems like a guy who, who could potentially you know make some money this offseason when he wouldn't have if he had you know maybe like like rocking christmas been drafted by an indiana pacers team that was stressing um experience and so that's how you know rocking gets gets buried despite his his strengths and versatility gets buried you know in the fort wayne mad ants for much of the season that's a big problem with like getting drafted by a team like the pacers or and being sent to the d-league even if you succeed in the d-league which he has he's done an incredible job in the d-league it's very hard to break out of the D-League and actually make a name for yourself and make it into the NBA. We've seen players like Hassan Whiteside go from the, go from D-League to start in the NBA, but it's extremely rare, especially in the NBA has, in my opinion, one of the worst minor league systems in sports in terms of players actually making it through D-League and cracking a, spot, a starting spot in the NBA or just a spot in general in the NBA. I think, uh, I can't remember correctly, but I believe he, uh, Christmas won, I think, player of the month in the D-League. He's scoring more than 20 points. He's rebounding the ball extremely well. And he's been called up, but he hasn't even seen a single minute of playing time yet. Yeah, and, and you know, I think the I think the issue with the D-League isn't that it hasn't grown and it hasn't developed. I think it's actually done a great job of, of being, being able to shift, uh, you know, on a dime and being able to adjust to, to the NBA and, and adjust to what it... I guess adjusting its purpose on the fly, but the problem is because player turnover is so low, um, injuries aside and, and, you know, retirements aside, you're just not seeing the, the roster turnover in the NBA that you see in other sports. I mean, the NFL would be a prime um, league for, for a true minor league and not just, you know, college football because of the fact that there's always injuries. There's, there's folks that just, you know... The, the, the precipitous drop in, in play when, when you know some players hit a certain age or a wall or, or a physical limitation, whatever it is, you, you would see a huge, huge kind of turnover um, outside of the star players. Um, I think baseball, um, obviously, you know, injuries play a part there. I think you know players, nothing, non-pitchers can age out very quickly. Um, it, it obviously makes sense the way they do things. Same with the NHL, um, the player churn. Um, past the stars um, is going to be enough that you know players don't fear for their jobs all the time but there's also just the the continuing specter of bringing a young guy up to help develop talent i think the nba i think it was something like 30 to 35 percent of players now um, on rosters played in the d league that's good progress uh it, it doesn't mean that that the league necessarily succeeded yet but it's something that um you know it, it is going to be a continuing narrative especially as more and more teams add um, their own franchises. I think we're at, what, 19 franchises and 18 are individually owned. Um, So I I think where the D-League is really going to be successful is once you have, um, you know, full saturation of of 30 franchises to support the the 30 NBA teams. And that's when you start seeing, you know, real development and and real investment in in future talent. I think now you're seeing a lot of, of stashing and a lot of just like, well, like, if we need a guy called up, um, then great. Um, I, I think more and more NBA teams. I think if if LeBron's Cavs, you know, kind of kind of bite the dust this season and, and, and start to fall apart, um, I think you're going to see more and more, um, you know, teams geared toward a toward a uh, Golden State Warriors, uh, San Antonio Spurs, and other style of of talent development and, and, and more of a maybe not money ball because all these teams are spending a lot of money, but um, much more of a player development focused um, model that, that the NBA could shift toward and maybe away from what looked like a, could have been the new norm and ended up being a five to seven year blip um, of, of, of building star teams solely on free agency. Mm-hmm. I think if they ever do get to the point where, each team has their own D-League affiliate, and that's their personal D-League affiliate where only they can call up players. It would definitely give teams way more incentive to actually develop those other guys, kind of like in the MLB, where one team can't sign another. Like the New York Mets can't sign someone on the Yankees D-League affiliate like you can do in the NBA right now. I feel like if they ever do get that point, I just think it'd be, they'd be more in, incentive to invest time in 
grow those younger players that have potential. They may not be, they may not have all the pieces together, but they still have that potential where you've developed them. They can make that big jump and then crack the NBA. Yeah, I think that's a great point. Um, I guess now shifting finally to, um, you know, maybe a sport that, that people are actually watching right now live. Um, what's going on with the lacrosse team? And obviously, you know, we don't have Jim Simmons or, or, or uh, John on here to to discuss in depth. And there are there are lacrosse folks, but Ari, from from what you've seen, either in person or, or perhaps televised or, or box scores, what what has you worried about lacrosse? Um, as, as we kind of enter the home stretch of this season? I think the biggest worry has to be turnovers. They average I think, 13 turnovers a game, which is something you can't do if you're trying to be an elite lacrosse program, which Syracuse has that name for and is known for. When you turn the ball over in any sport, that's not a good sign. That's not a sign of a team that can win consistently. Yeah, and you know what I, I think, and this is something that's been brought up too, is that it's it, it's murdering the the clear advantage that Syracuse has uh, on faceoffs. Faceoffs, yeah. Yeah, the, the Ben Williams has turned a, an Achilles heel for this team, and it's something that lost us a championship game against Duke. Um, you know, it, it, into a real strength. But the problem is, yeah, it's it's those those continuous um, and, and nagging turnovers that that are just you know really kind of cutting us off at the knees in terms of of winning games and, and closing out games where we have leads. I mean, this is now three overtime losses and. Um, you know, Brent Axe pointed out on Twitter after the game last night, you know, saying um, three overtime losses, though, like even if you're six and four, that's troubling. But three overtime losses, you have to feel better about that um, than, than getting blown out in four games. But at the end of the day, I think that the tournament committee is going to be evaluating wins and losses. And, and, and Ari, are we are we in a very perilous spot right now in terms of, of, of the tournament still with some games to play? I wouldn't say perilous. I think there's still a very good chance they're going to make the tournament. They, you also got to remember, they still have games against Binghamton and Colgate left on the schedule, and those teams are 4-6 and six and 3-8. and eight. If Those are winnable games. Those are the games that they should win. If for some reason Syracuse loses one of those games, then I would definitely say we're in trouble, and they shouldn't make the tournament if they lose one of those games. Although North Carolina is 7-4, and they are one of the best teams in the country. I still think it's a game Syracuse could win. Will they win? I'm not sure. If they lose that game, then I definitely think it's time to panic. Fair. I guess, do you think that the way lacrosse is going, um, that the ACC uh, and its its you know collection of dominant programs, are, are they getting too much credit for just kind of beating up on each other that eventually they have to um, you know, kind of deliver the goods, uh, as it were? I'm not sure if they get too much credit. I mean, that's a tough call to make because they do have some of the best teams in the country in this in the a one single conference. It's just kind of, I guess, a matter of perspective. The same way people view the SEC with football. If you're a fan of the ACC, you're going to say there these are the best teams in the country regardless of your record. If you're not a fan of the ACC, then you're probably just going to say the opposite. So it's very hard to evaluate. I think until we get to the NCAA tournament and then see how these teams re- fare in a, in a tournament in the single elimination game. Fair. Um, so I guess, you know, to you, um, you know, talking about my point before from, from Brent, are you, do you feel like three overtime losses has you at ease um, versus, you know, having, you know, three maybe blowout losses on top of the other blowout loss in Notre Dame? Well, I mean, six and four, you can't really be at ease. But I, I would agree with Brent that three overtime losses, those are three games Syracuse could win. If they'd win those three games, they're eight and one, and we're not even having this discussion. Even if they win two, that's still a very solid record. So I do understand why many fans are panicking and calling for John Desco's head, which I think is ridiculous. But I do understand why you would panic when a team like Syracuse with such a long tradition in lacrosse and has been such one of the top tier elite programs in the country i agree i understand why you would panic but i think it's time to maybe reel it back again because those are three games syracuse could theoretically have won each game they were in it till the very end there's a reason why those games went to overtime because syracuse was in a winnable position sometimes the ball just doesn't roll your way 
Yeah, no, I think that that's a great point, and it's hopefully one that the committee um, looks over a bit. I know that this is a pretty wild season. Obviously, you have a lot of teams that have maybe been down for a long time um, that, that seem to be playing their way up. Um, out of the teams ranked, in, you know, back on Monday, um, is there? There's obviously a couple candidates here. Who would you say is the most surprising addition? Um, and obviously, this isn't shocking based on the, the season's results. But um, looking at you know Marquette and, and Rutgers in particular, uh, which of those two, if you maybe said three years ago, would be in the top twenty, um, w- would shock you most? I would probably go with Rutgers, just because they haven't really been c- close to a top twenty-five across country. Sorry, top twenty uh, lacrosse team in the country in the past, and I would never have predicted a team with Rutgers, especially with in general all the athletics as a whole that they've dealt with, and as a just as an all the scandals and being in the media for all the wrong reasons in terms of play on the field and in terms of everything that's been going off off the field. I would never predict a team like Rutgers to be able to crack the top twenty. There, no, and I completely agree there. I think that was the, the team that I was I was assuming it's uh, just based on. You know, Rutgers has largely been a, a trash athletic program. They've been a trash uh, lacrosse team in particular. I know that they were an easy win that you could chalk up, um, you know, at, at the end of at the end of you know any season. Uh, back when we were in the Big East for a few years, and when we used to play them and in a, a myriad of other you know Eastern teams. Um, when we were, you know, the power of Eastern Independence along with Johns Hopkins. Um, if you had to look at things right now, um, who do you think uh, is your final four? Um, looking at current records and, again, a really wild season that that, that has kind of already taken on a life of its own and, and featured a lot of, um, you know, unexpected turns. Who, who, who do you think is, is, is playing, you know, Memorial Day weekend? That's tough. This is a, this is a season where there's just been uh, so much pride. You have Duke, who's seven and six right now, and you have Syracuse, who's six and four. If I had to pick four right now, I'd probably go Notre Dame, Denver. I'll throw Maryland in there and fourth. Um, I mean, I guess Yale because they they are ten and zero. So until proven otherwise, I mean, I don't know how you can really pick against them. That's fair. Yeah. Uh, I'm going to go Notre Dame for sure. I'm going Denver uh, because, I mean, at this point, I think they've proven themselves to be a really, you know, kind of solid program, a bedrock of the sport. Um, going with Maryland as well. Um, and then as my fourth, my fourth, I'm going to go North Carolina. Um, it's not that I, I doubt Yale. I, I don't. Um, but. I, I just think that North Carolina is going to find a way to figure it out. Um, so yeah, that, that's my that's my final four. You got two ACC teams in there, um, and could definitely be more. Um, but yeah, it could also again be less. Looking at like you said, you know, Duke's a seven and sixteen that could easily make the final four, but um, they could also just as easily because of the strength um, in the bracket this year, and, and just looking you know kind of up and down the, the country with so many good teams. Um, you could, could just as easily be cruising towards a first-round loss. Right. There's just a lot of different scenarios that can still take place. I mean, Syracuse could still somehow figure it out and then go on a shriek, and they could also not even make the tournament altogether. And there are a lot of different. There are a lot of other teams that are in that same situation. Yeah, and I mean, it's the type of thing, too, where, you know, ACC tournament, um, obviously it's another chance to pick up some big wins. Um, that's kind of the advantage of, of playing in this conference is that if you don't, if you pick up maybe borderline amount of wins during the regular season, you've got potentially two more games um, to, to grab a couple more um, and, and really pad that resume as the season closes out. Exactly. Hopefully Syracuse figures it out and we'll see what happens, but this game against North Carolina is definitely going to be the turning point in either direction. I would agree. It's going to be a critical one. Um, Ari, anything else today? Uh, you know, I appreciate the, the kind of last minute fill-in here. I mean, not much. I guess, if speaking about lacrosse, I would just say, at least tell Syracuse fans to try to relax and not call for 
John Disco's head, a coach that's brought you multiple championships. I was just looking on Twitter, especially com and seeing some of these comments. I mean, I just feel like a lot of times fans just react way too quickly and harshly. What people don't realize, when you try to call the fire a coach, you gotta also think, is there someone out there that's actually better? Yeah, I, I was gonna you know, kind of close with that too, is that um, and John and Jim brought this up in particular, um, you know, following, I think, loss number three, uh, and, and that was a blowout loss to Notre Dame, was it's who who's better than Desco right now? I don't think exactly. there's a ton of, there's not a ton of great lacrosse coaching talent out there um, at, at this moment, and that's not a knock on the current coaches, just to say that, like, who again, who are you going to hire? There's... If you're Syracuse, you know, you're at the top of the sport. You have one of its best coaches. Um, if you fire Desco, he's going to go somewhere and he's going to win and he's going to make you look stupid. Um, and, and not to say that Desco's perfect. I don't think he is. I'm not the, the biggest Desco defender. But at the same time, I, I, I agree with the logic of if you're going to make, if you're going to fire someone, then you better be able to hire someone better. And I'm just, I'm at a loss for who might be better. Um, in college lacrosse right now. Right. This isn't college football where there are just so many different coaching camps. You can always pick and choose from year in and year out. This is like lacrosse is a lot different. There's less teams. There's less teams with elite coaches, and there's going to be less elite coaches available. Desco's a man who's won more than 100 games. That's You're not going to find a guy that has the type of resume that he has. Too, too true. I think that's a good, uh, I think it's a good place to end it, Ari. Appreciate your... Uh... Your input there in particular. I know uh, lacrosse can sometimes get the, the shaft, no pun uh, <laughs> intended, here. Uh, and uh, when, when it comes to the football and basketball and other nonsense that Dan and I talk about, but uh, it's good to get a little lacrosse talk in. So, all right, thanks for, uh, thanks for filling in. Much appreciate your contributions today. No problem. It's great to be here. And hopefully we have you back sometime soon, and hopefully uh, maybe with a, uh, with a healthy Dan as well. Um, so I'm John. That was Ari. You've been listening to Troy Noons is an absolute podcast. Uh, be sure to rate, review, subscribe on iTunes, on Blog Talk, and uh, yeah, go Orange. With 25% off all new and up to 70% off previously leased furnishings, do you really need a better reason to party? We don't think so. Come visit our new Court Furniture Clearance Center with more than 9,000 square feet of new and previously leased furniture and decor for your home and office. Sofas from $199.99, bedroom sets from $399.99, dining sets from $299.99, and more. Free food, prizes, and fun all weekend long at our Chantilly Court Furniture Clearance Center at 13946 Lee Jackson Memorial Highway or go online at courtclearancefurniture.com. Huge savings on new and previously leased furnishings. That's right, huge savings. At Court Furniture Clearance Center, choose from our wide variety of new and previously leased furniture and decor for your home or office. You'll find sofas from $199.99 and more. Everything in our 9,000-square-foot showroom is court-certified, guaranteed, and in stock, ready for delivery or to take home today. Visit our Chandelier Court Furniture Clearance Center at 13946 Lee Jackson Memorial Highway or go online at courtclearancefurniture.com. Mention Radio 20 and get 20% off.